Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. was one of the most accomplished scientists of the 20th century. When he died on the 29th of March 2020, the world of physics lost a singular talent. He was a theoretician who drew his inspiration from experiment, not from mathematics. In his long career of physics, working at the front lines, he made dozens of contributions to our understanding of solids, ordinary materials you can touch and feel. He wasn't so interested in fundamental particle physics or cosmology. But his ideas had applications across physics and deeply affected the texture of the subject. Perhaps most famous of these insights was his understanding of symmetry breaking. Picked up by others, it was applied to theories of fundamental particles consistent with quantum theory and relativity. That led to the prediction of the Higgs particle. And when that was detected, that was one of the great triumphs of uh, recent years. I first met Phil over dinner at my friend Lily Harris Chandra's in Princeton. It was just before his 90th birthday in 2013. He was a lively, provocative conversationalist. He liked to swim against the tide. He was certainly suspicious of string theory and even of current trends in his own subject. I remember him being egged on by his old friend Freeman Dyson, who was at the same dinner table. When I was researching my new book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers, I was eager to speak with him. That book 
makes the case that physics and mathematics work best when they're working harmoniously and they can add a lot to each other. He would be the ideal voice for the opposition. So I went along to his office at Princeton University on the 31st of July 2013. And when I walked in, I was rather taken aback to see him sitting in front of a giant poster that featured a huge image of his face. Well, he wasn't quite an egomaniac, uh, but uh, he certainly knew his value to the, uh, the world of physics. He told me in the interview about uh, how he came to be interested in the subject, particularly as an undergraduate at Harvard, although there he learnt very little quantum mechanics. He was switched on to research when he came under the wing of Julian Schwinger, one of the pioneers of quantum electrodynamics, and later by the wonderful John Van Vleck, who pioneered the use of uh, quantum mechanics in the understanding of ordinary solids. Van Vleck was to exert a huge influence on Phil, and Phil even regarded himself as a protege of the great Van Vleck. In the interview, you'll hear Phil talk about modern trends in physics, in fundamental physics. He's certainly suspicious of string theory, but hugely admiring of the talents of John Schwartz and Edward Witten, both pioneers of string theory. He'll tell us why he's suspicious of those theories and what he would do now if he were a physicist starting out again. Now, in this podcast, there are no bells and whistles. It was recorded during the uh, uh, coronavirus lockdown. So please excuse the rough edges on this one. But it's really worth listening to. Phil was a great talent and it's well worth taking in his, his wisdom and insights. Enjoy. So I was naive about physics. I had okay. really, really, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I loved science. Okay. Uh, only in some general. And I never knew that quantum mechanics existed as an, as an undergraduate, for instance. As an undergraduate? As an undergraduate. They didn't teach quantum mechanics to undergraduates. Can you give me the years where you were there as an undergraduate? 40, 40 to 43. And you were not taught quantum mechanics? quantum mechanics, hardly. There okay. may have been a little Tiny bit, little bit. Okay. tagged in at the end. Okay. I learned quantum mechanics during the war. But I don't, I don't need to tell you all the stories of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting one because there was an old drunken old PhD physicist who uh, was kept borrowing money from him and finally he couldn't pay it back and he gave me his copy of a textbook, which I still have, yeah. and from which I learned quantum mechanics. So that was, what a story! I didn't know that you're drunk. Would you would you care to say who this person was or his name was Ralph Taylor? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. He, I mean, he, you you lent him money and he gave you back this this book. Yeah. That's astounding. <laughs> and it's I still have it somewhere. There it is. Oh wow! Mathematics of physics and chemistry, Mar- Mar- Marginal and Murphy. Oh wow! <laughs> You'll find his name in the front. Yeah. Oh, yes! <laughs> Good Lord. From Yale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mar- oh, yes. Marginal, Marginal was a competitor in, in the field of my thesis, and so I got to know him fairly well. 
Not a particularly good physicist. But yeah, it was, but this, this looks but good he, solid. He, it's a very good text. Yeah, good solid stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, okay. Anyway, sorry, this is how you got into quantum mechanics. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I learned quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. And then I leapt from there into graduate school. I worked on radar during the war, or mm -hmm. equivalent of radar, electronics. Wait, uh, was that MIT? No, that was uh, Naval Research Lab. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Lots of stories there, but you don't need to know. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. But uh, I got to graduate school. We were lucky at the Naval Research Lab, unlucky in everything else because it was kind of a crummy lab. But, but uh, lucky in that the the Navy had Admiral Straws later and later to be. Uh, much hated during the Oppenheimer hearings, but, but he let us all free. He, he closed the lab down, basically, to let us out of the Navy in September and October yeah. 1945. Mm -hmm. So practically, with VJ Day, we were on our way out, and I could get to graduate school for that first semester. Forty-five. Uh, so you were set oh, free on that day, pretty much. What? Set free. You were set free yeah, yeah. on VJ Day. Yeah. On VJ, essentially VJ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. well, September first. Uh, all right. Okay. 1st, all right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just so very soon after. Okay. And I immediately started taking a course of <coughs> three semesters of lectures by Julian Schwinger. Oh! <laughs> oh! Oh! Wow! Knowing no quantum mechanics except what I'd learned from Ralph Taylor. And, uh, Good Lord. So, you, well, say that again, because this is fact great. You said you, it was a three-semester course, did you say? Yeah. Uh, and he just, he just, it was a core dump. Everything that he'd done up until that time, he dumped on it in our laps. Right. All kinds of variational theory of the Deuteron. Yeah. Wow. Waveguide theory and, uh, well, Green's function theory, yeah. which he'd used to do solve waveguide problems during mm. the war. He's a wonderful physicist, absolutely. He is a wonderful. Yeah. Oh, well, I got at the sensation of being lectured at this level. Good lecture? Good lecture in your opinion? He was a, well, he was elegant lecturer. Okay. You couldn't believe that he could make a mistake, but actually there were very bright guys in the class. And uh, Okay. And they caught him in mistakes, and every once in a while he would say, forget the last lecture, and he would do it all. Okay, all right. off the top of his head. Well, no, no, Schwinger can make mistakes, but uh, yeah, I, that was 45, wow. Right, okay. Okay, tell me, this is thrilling, so you, you would lecture, you had three great courses from him. Three good, great semesters, but at the same time I was learning real quantum mechanics from, from Furry, who was a Really marvelous teacher. All oh, right, but much better teacher than Schwinger. And uh, oh my goodness! Uh, hold on, he's, he's very well known. This is Oppenheimer and Ferry. This, is this the? Oh, is that the guy? The one I know from the paper? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, Wendell Furry was a good. Well, Wendell Wendell Furry was the 
destroyed by this by equally by being attacked simultaneously by the House on American Activities Committee yeah. and by Schwinger coming to Harvard. And he, his light could never, never be okay. seen yeah. okay. behind Schwinger. Behind Schwinger. Okay. Lots of other great physicists were there, but none of them who really competed directly with Schwinger. I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Van Vleck didn't, and Blue uh, Morgan didn't, and uh, various other people, Purcell didn't. Uh, mm, okay. Right. It was a wonderful department. Oh. But only Furry competed directly with Shrine. Oh, I see, okay. okay. And it, it was yeah. just okay. hopeless for him. Yeah, 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 no, I understand. It's like having Feynman land in your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, yeah, yeah, I understand. Like Gilman would probably be even more destructive. Yeah, 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 yes, I know, yeah, I know. As you say, it's unlucky if you happen to. Uh, happen, I think, just aside, I think that happened, this is not. Just a comment for relative to what we were saying earlier. That that's what happened to Born in some degree, you know, mm -hmm. with uh, Heisenberg. Mm -hmm. He admitted it late in life, you know, to have this very brilliant guy. That uh, anyway. Um, mm -hmm. um, well, anyhow, very very taught wonderful course. Oh yeah. Huh? It's had a, two semesters of uh, quantum mechanics and one semester of statmet from him. Okay. That was good teaching. But I in, intuited the furry effect, and so I was careful to stay out of, of particle physics and mm. high energy physics. And I, I chose Van Vleck on that basis. Oh! I have not, often th not thought enough of these days, in my opinion. Wow. Mm -hmm. he was, oh, he was a wonderful man. Yeah. The most perfect gentleman one could ever imagine. You know, he almost never put his name on his student's thesis. I never even, he never, I, or I never even brought up the question. I should have asked him, but I didn't. I just wrote it myself. I wish I wish I when I wrote my Dirac book I'd known this because that was the last that was the last um, big trip he made to his funeral and it struck me that he he did not like travelling at that time mm -hmm. but he went he flew a long way to go to that funeral so mm -hmm. hmm. anyway so you you were studying with Van Vleck um, yeah. who was very much an applied oh yeah very, very well at, particularly at that time. You know, he'd been uh, involved in the beginnings of quantum mechanics, too. Yep. He wrote the last book on the old quantum mechanics. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then he wrote the first book, really, on uh, solid-state physics. Okay. And that was, you know, contained a lot of stuff. Uh, but, yes. I mean, he was, at that point, uh, nuclear, or magnetic resonance, nuclear and electronic, was being invented. Mm -hmm. And Van Vleck's role was the, to be the house theorist for the whole world, mm -hmm. to uh, kind of tell them 
like what what the quantum what the quantum energy levels of small molecules were that that, that uh, mm -hmm. one group of people were studying. Uh, yeah, I see. Yeah. And how the uh, energy levels of electrons in crystalline solids went. There was a great business in, in magnetic resonance of uh, magnetic, mm -hmm. uh, ferromagnetic solids, mm -hmm. and he sorted out the mm -hmm. the crystal field theory of all these energy mm -hmm. levels. He was, so he was being, being everybody's mm -hmm. kind of house theorist. When he gave me, and he gave me one of the problems that was opening up in that field. Right. And that was a chemical physics problem, or how do lines, spectral lines broaden in, uh, in gases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pressure broadening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, that was a wonderful problem. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an excessively long thesis on it. I probably even have that on the shelves here mm -hmm. somewhere. Uh, 246 pages. Mm -hmm. My wife typed it. Oh. 246 pages? Is that a review article? Well, uh, yeah, it wasn't a review. It was longer than... Well, yes, it was. Well, about half of it was padding that had to go in because Van wouldn't really understand things in Schwinger's type notation nice. yeah. of uh, and modern notation. Okay. And what became modern notation at yeah. Schwinger was teaching us to use correlation functions, mm -hmm. and the kind of thing that everybody does there yeah, yeah. does things in now. But yeah. we were just uh, Schwinger was just introducing it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Schwinger and Martin was the first first such paper. Uh, <coughs> anyhow, I had to translate it into Van's notation. Mm, and that made it a little mm, longer. Okay. But it was an enormous uh, review article. And did May I ask, had you got your PhD by then, or was this your PhD? This was my PhD. That was your PhD, okay. In a paper? Yeah. Yeah, okay. The final personal story I will tell you is that uh, Van didn't really, well he'd been being Lorentz professor in Leiden for, during the time when I'd actually done this. Mm -hmm. I, had, I'd had a, I had a marvelous time in graduate school for the first two years. Mm -hmm. And then they got married, and rather suddenly, and we had a baby on the way, mm. and so uh, I started to work. Mm. So I'd been uh, rather lightweight, and so Van didn't do any, didn't uh, do any, anything specially for me. Oh. And then he started to look at my thesis. Well, I didn't realize it, but he suddenly realized it was a good thesis. Okay, yeah. And my, he made my thesis committee uh, Schwinger, Weisskopf, and himself. Wow. 
goodness gracious. I scared as death. Oh, I bet you I think anyone would be. <laughs> yeah. But actually, I need to be scared because, uh, you know, they, were, they weren't up, up to that. Yeah. And, uh, That's right up with Feynman's one, you know, with uh, Wheeler and uh, Wigner and, uh, yeah. 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 Right. Oh, it was... But I, I didn't realize that that was a compliment. I thought. Oh. Uh, I thought. But anyhow, the, he also said casually, "Have you got a job?" Mm. And I said, "Yes, yes. I've been offered from Westinghouse and offered Westinghouse Research Labs, and I've been offered from Pullman College in or Washington State College in Pullman, Washington." Mm -hmm. And he said, well, we'll have to do something about that. And he went down to Bell Labs via the P.B. Snow, the crack yeah. crack uh, train on the mm. Lackawanna Railroad, which he could ride because he's, he was the, world, the railroad, railroad company's consultant on schedules. I know, he, he had a remarkable memory for these. He had a remarkable memory for schedules. Anyhow, he did ride. And he talked to Shockley and Mardine. Oh, wow. I interviewed there, and unimpressively, because I'd only just started on mm -hmm. thesis. But apparently, he talked them into it. Right. And so I got an offer finally from Bill Lyles. Mm -hmm. And we had a, I had a back and forth with. Sharkley saying, I won't take a, a postdoc with me in an industrial lab. There is no such thing. I want a regular job. And he, I, I didn't realize that Bell Labs contracts are yearly anyhow. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he had me in mind as a postdoc. I see. Wow. But I, I was a postdoc. Or I didn't think I was a postdoc. Anyhow, he, he accepted me, mm -hmm. and so I went off to Bell Labs. And see, I well, I did perfect purposely avoided the high highbrow stuff, and the heavily mathematical stuff. Although I'd done some fairly heavy mathematics in my yeah, okay. Actually, stochastic theory was in a primitive state then, and I'd used. Uh, Markov theory and uh, statistic theory in general, mm -hmm. and I used uh, correlation function methods. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that these were advanced mathematics. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. I just did them. Yes, I see. Okay. Yeah. So I was not a, not in. I was very much focused on solving the problem that was in front of me. Yeah. In that sense, I, I was much more like a beta student. Beta is the great problem solver, yeah. It's, a, it's basically a problem solver. Mm -hmm. So that was the source of my attitude towards And it went on from there and, and solved a number of problems in Bell Labs. Mm. And uh, 
but very close to, I would have, it just, I'm very, guessing, very, very close, close to experiment. experiment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the first, <coughs> actually, the second really exciting thing I did was, the first one was, I didn't realize how exciting it was until after, until several years afterwards. Yeah. And the first one, I just assumed that all these highbrow people understood it. Mm -hmm. That was the, the idea of broken symmetry. <laughs> I, under, I believed that all that everybody understood the quasi-degeneracy of broken symmetry. Mm -hmm. uh, I did in about the f uh, well, a paper I did in fifty-two, fifty-three, fifty-one, fifty-two, right. fifty-one, fifty-three. Yeah, because. Charlie Cattell came uh, casually around to Gregory Wanya and I, who were in the same room, and said, you have to just think about anti-ferromagnetism. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Gregory and I thought about anti-ferromagnetism. Mm -hmm. And Gregory uh, studied seriously the first first serious case of frustrated antiferromagnetism, namely the triangular icing lattice. Mm -hmm. He showed that it had finite zero-point entropy. Mm -hmm. And I solved the problem of dimensionality and antiferromagnetism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that was an important paper until much later when I realized that all these, all these brilliant people that I had learned from didn't understand it. Okay, I didn't know this. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then, then the second thing that I did that was noteworthy, and the thing I got the Nobel Prize for was localization. Yeah, yeah. And that was a case of a process that's happened to me again and again. It's, it's deep and hard mathematics. Mm -hmm. But the reason I, I did it was because the experiment were, experiments were unequivocal. Yeah. And they showed that it was simply impossible that any conventional theory of transport mm -hmm. could, could explain localization. Mm -hmm. I had to find a new theory of, of transport or non-transport. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That was a very mathematical paper, but I used a model which was a very, very mathematized version of the real physical system. Mm -hmm. But it was the first, perhaps the first example in which I invented a model for the purpose of, mm -hmm. of uh, Explaining something, demonstrating something uh, explicitly. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so I learned model building on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <coughs> but it started me out with this idea that. First, I see an experiment which is totally in contradiction with the accepted 
wisdom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, then I, I have to have to build a new accepted wisdom. Mm -hmm. Mathematically. Yeah. And then the understanding of that mathematics is still a serious problem for the mathematicians. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. But it didn't start in mathematics. No. Well, it did. Because before I did it, I read some papers by a mathematician named Hammersley about, uh, what is it called? Percolation. Oh, yeah. So I read Hammersley on percolation theory, and I realized that something like that could be worked out for quantum mechanics. On a model system for what was what's called impurity bands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to make an invidious comparison or. A, unfair comparison. But since then I've thought that was Einstein's method. Mm -hmm. He sees this strange fact that the two masses are, are the same. Yeah. Experimental fact, very, very simple, incontrovertible. Mm -hmm. Why in hell are they the same? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He didn't start from the from the mathematics of no, uh, no. Of traces. Yeah, 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 yeah. He started from an experimental fact. Yeah. I see. And he started from an experimental fact in electromagnetism too. He didn't really need the Michelson Morley experiment. No, as he often said, yeah. As he often said that. Mm -hmm. that was irrelevant, the mere facts, the facts of, of uh, Maxwell's equivalent of Maxwell's equations mm -hmm. are quite enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So hold on a second, what would you say, he, you're saying he started from what what experimental thing in special relativity? Oh, it's just the, the facts of electromagnetic induction. All right. Okay. As the fact that Maxwell's equations contain that displacement for a term, mm -hmm. and so the so light propagates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Maxwell's equations don't start out with. Yeah. With an ether. No. No. Mm -hmm. I mean, Maxwell thought of them in, as mm -hmm. happening in an ether, but. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. No reference to an ether in the equations. So he's starting from experiment. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the source of my prejudice. Mm -hmm. And what worries me about string theory is it isn't. I mean, the experimental fact is 
much more distant from the mathematical realization of it. Yes, there are two experiments. They really are starting from two experimental facts. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand that. Mm -hmm. They're starting from the experimental fact of continuous gauge groups. Yep. And the gauge group has got to be a symmetry of something. Mm -hmm. And the second experimental fact is that it all converges. And an easy way to make everything converge is to assume supersymmetry. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I give them that, okay, maybe, maybe they got some experimental facts. Mm -hmm. But it's awfully distant from the experimental facts. Oh, I see. Now you're about the theory. Yeah, okay. To the theory. Okay, okay. I mean, the theory has been an enormous structure that has been built on these. Mm -hmm. These experimental facts mm -hmm. that are, you know, are explicable in various other ways, perhaps. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could just start and say, okay, let's write down the theory that has these gauge groups in it. Actually, that's been shown to converge. It's a perfectly good theory, except for gravity. Mm -hmm. You're not impressed by the apparent fact that uh, string theory makes gravity essential. That doesn't impress you. I think gravity is essential anyhow. Yeah, but out of the theory, you get a you get a spin to a graviton coming out of the equations. Mm. <coughs> well, I'm, I guess I'm not, I'm not a clued into those, those the, to the mathematics or to the equations mm -hmm. as all that. I mean, I'm, I'm a relative ignoramus of string theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, I don't know it well. Yeah, but you're suspicious. You're saying is that fair? I'm suspicious because it's a big structure built on on some enormous assumptions from, from for which there is no evidence, no no contact with the experiment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've been going on and on and on for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Well, I was practically there when it started. Mm -hmm. I used to play tennis with John Schwartz. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Was he, he here was a then? close friend. He was here, was he? No, no. He was, was a Caltech? He was an Aspen guy. Oh, I see. I can see. I always think of when him as a When I was in Aspen, we, we became quite friendly. I, I believe I even went to his wedding. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
Well, I spent a couple of semesters at Caltech as a as a, uh, a Fairchild fellow, mm. Fairchild professor, and I see. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was he happened to be starting sort of string theory. Just it was nineteen eighty, and he was starting string theory. Yeah, at that time. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I knew him in Aspen from Aspen. My tennis game hadn't deteriorated yet to the point where I couldn't play it. So, is it fair to say that you're, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you sound as if you're a little bit concerned at the volume of research, of research mm -hmm. power that is put into string theory yeah. today. Is that a fair statement? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I've known Ed Whitten ever since he was a graduate student. Oh my goodness. Mm. One of the things, you know, Ed, as a graduate student, was practically already a member of the faculty. <laughs> Why did you say that? He... Well, he was, he was more senior than me in a sense. Why? I mean, he, he would have been, I only came here in 75 and then as part-time. When I or as I was in the course of gradually retiring from Bell, yeah, I eventually completely retired from there in eighty-four. Came here, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. But I started in seventy-five, and during I forget it was whether it was the first or second year, Ed actually came to me and said, "Would you mind?" doing us a couple of lectures on your work on the condo problem. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and the X-ray edge problem and, and that kind of thing. And yes, I knew he was a graduate student, but he, he organized this, this set of lectures. They did three lectures for Ed Whitten. Mm -hmm. On, on this field. Yeah. A, he knew, <laughs> he knew about it and he knew that it was interesting. Yeah. As a grad, as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And we've we've been good friends ever since. Oh, really? That is, when Joyce and I lived in over in the rental housing here, or had a editor here, mm -hmm. we, uh, Met his his family and mm. knew them quite well. Mm -hmm. I was I didn't it didn't make me laugh though when you said I just want to check I wasn't overinterpreting it. But you said he was from when he was a graduate student, he was practically a member of the faculty. Do you mean that he was in some sense especially talented, perceived as so? Or oh yes, I see. Right, oh, you yes. meant that's what you meant. Yeah, well, I mean, they do. I mean, we we do. Encourage the graduate students to run the summer school that actually is being run okay, at right. this moment and okay. downstairs. It's, mm -hmm. It just finished this after this. Next. Yes. Okay. Uh, we encourage them to do that. We're delighted that they do it. But he he did that kind of thing on his own hook, with completely good. Uh, right. 
But that's not just organising talk. You're talking about him as a physicist as well, presumably. Yeah, practically. Yeah, yeah, OK. I don't, well, I, 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 I wasn't that close. I was, to some extent, that close with the, that part of, part of the department. Actually, they were doing, uh, it was during the period, they were doing asymptotic freedom. And that yeah, yeah, of yeah, yeah. So I was aware of what they were doing. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've always been friendly with that. And I do appreciate his mathematics, and he's terrific. Mm. He's been going to our our stuff on quantum information and so on. Mm. He's very interested in that. Is he? I didn't know that. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. Okay. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, that is news to me. So we find him in one, most of the quantum information type talks. I once heard T.D. Lee say, he, it, was, it was clothed, but it was undeniable what he meant. He, was, he said, I, I remember very clearly him talking at the front of the hall, this is 20 years ago, and he said that he was worried that a subject could be dominated by someone of such brilliance. He was talking about Edward, of course, right? And he worried that, it, that, uh, that the analogy he feared that it might be like Einstein post-1926. You know, he wasn't quite that explicit, but he was not denying in any way it was great brilliance, but he was concerned that, that the influence he had was monumental, as opposed to simply a brilliant person among many other um, talents. Well, he didn't do it, doesn't do it alone, didn't do it alone. Mm -hmm. Murray, for instance, created, although he hasn't done string theory himself, created the cocoon in which Schwartz and Green could work. Oh, yeah, Murray Gaman, yeah. Murray Gaman. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. So in, his influence is very important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, well, <laughs> David McGross throw, makes no secret of throwing his weight around. Yes, yes, I know. I mean, everybody does it. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I don't think it's Ed's. No, 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 I'm not suggesting he was... You blame No, 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 please, I wasn't suggesting he was using it improperly. I'm just saying that when you have a talent that is very, very big, uh, and uh, it's, not, it's not like when you had Einstein and Bohr and, and, and upcoming people like Heisenberg and Dirac, you know, it, it's, it seems that Edward is a you know, an overwhelming talent in that field. Maybe that's my error, but uh, that's what I think he was suggesting. But uh, maybe that's not right. Yeah, it's, it certainly frightens me to be on the, to be even tentatively on the other side from that. <laughs> 
I don't you've got anything to worry about. Freema Dyson, you'll be abused to hear, says, now, uh, Phil Anderson, he's a real physicist. <laughs> this is what he said to me last year, and I was, I was very struck by Well, I'm guy. glad he thinks so. He did say that, I promise you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like the implication that most others are unreal. <laughs> well, yeah. So what would you advise? There are a lot of unreal ones. I know, no, I <laughs> But if, tell me, if you, had a re you had, if you had somebody now, a young person coming in, right? Uh, uh, I would keep him out of string theory. Well, you took the word right out of my mouth. No, I didn't say that. But you have someone really brilliant right, coming in, uh, going into graduate school or something, and they throw themselves at your feet and say, right, Professor Anderson, just tell me what would you, what would you, what broadly would be your advice? What would it be? Well, I, you know, I know what I would do myself. Mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't be in physics. I would be in neurophysiology. All right. But you said stay out of string theory then? I would stay out of string theory. Right. Because it's turning out to be a, a dead end and all the little wiggles. Wait until some experiment. Excuse me, I'm putting a pen because my one's run out. If this one works. I mean, there, there's a lot of. Well, the other thing I would, if he was still persistent, I would insist that he go into astrophysics and cosmology. Mm -hmm. Because those are soluble problems. Somebody's going to figure out what dark matter and yeah, dark yeah. energy yeah. are. Mm -hmm. Now, is the implication that you think string theory is not a soluble problem? Is that what you're? Well, it's not going to con condense on one thing until you've got more experimental oh, I see. evidence. Phil Anderson's key message is that theoretical physicists would be well advised to stick to parts of nature where the theorists can test their theories against accurate experimental data. Now, for most of us, that's very good advice. But I would argue that if you really want to understand all the fundamental forces of nature, all the fundamental particles under one framework, and to understand the nature of space and time, then in the world as we find it at the moment, with very few really exciting new experimental data, then mathematics is an invaluable lodestar. That's the key message of my book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers. Another way of putting it is that the patterns underlying the universe are what we're seeking. Patterns that are identified by experimental observations, but also codified in terms of mathematics. So we can focus on either the experimental observations or the mathematics that, is, uh, uh, that codifies those, those patterns. After Phil and I recorded the podcast, we went and had a good lunch in Princeton over a rather nice bottle of wine. We talked about uh, our uh, views of the way physics was going, and he asked me to send him a copy of The Universe Speaks in Numbers, which I did a few months ago. I was looking forward to talking about the book and many other things with him in the summer of 2020. Alas, it wasn't to be. 
Rest in peace, Phil Anderson.